how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is a conversation with Rance Hosley, and he is the winner of an Eisner Award, a Harvey Award. He's a screenwriter, an art director, an illustrator. He's a senior editor at Z2 Comics. He has stories about serial killers, Walt Disney, music, art, writing, adventure, um, Tori Amos, who's a friend of his. And in fact, Tori Amos just announced a couple weeks ago that uh, she's releasing her new album, Christmas Tide. It's her holiday-themed EP, and Rance painted the gatefold wraparound cover for that. They've known each other for many, many years, and he tells a fun story about her. I don't want to give too much away. Uh, we get right into it, and it's a fun conversation. In other news, uh, let's talk about social media. Hey Human Podcast is on Facebook and Instagram, and you can find my personal social media under Susan Ruthism, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Uh, Susan at heyhumanpodcast.com if you want to email me. There is a links page on heyhumanpodcast.com where you will find information about every episode that has aired and that will ever air. (laughs) Um, You can rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And please, for Christmas, this is what I would like for you to go and rate and review Hey Human. It would mean a lot and it's really super duper helpful. And I appreciate it if if you take the time to, to do that. SusanRuth.com is where you can find more information about me. You can join the mailing list there. I send out mailers about every quarter, so I will not deluge your inbox with emails. If you want to check out my music, go to iTunes and look up Susan Ruth, and I am there. If you're feeling like a jolly old elf and you would like to donate to Hey Human Podcast, you can do so right there on the front page of the website, HeyHumanPodcast.com. There is now Hey Human merchandise. Very exciting. It is uh, on there, the storefront. It's it's safe and secure, and you can get all sorts of items, clothes, and and artwork, and pencil cases, and hats, and masks, and all that kind of stuff. So definitely check out the merch for Hey Human. It really helps support the podcast. And again, I appreciate that. Um, I think that's it for the ends and outs. A couple shows that I recently watched. I know everyone's talking about it, but The Queen's Gambit was excellent. I really loved it. I grew up in a family that played chess, so I guess it was extra, extra for me. But wow, what a beautifully shot show. I loved her outfits. Um, And then I just watched a show called Maniac on Netflix. It has Jonah Hill and Emma Stone and a cast of crazy characters. What a ride that show was, and I loved it. It is trippy, though. Holy moly. So that's my recommendations for this week. Um, That's about it. Okay, let's get into this. Thank you for listening. Be smart, stay healthy, eat your vitamins, chew on some greens, do all the things. Here we go. Rance Hosley, welcome to Hey Human. Hello. How are you? Thanks for being on the show. Well, thanks for having me. It looks like we're both surrounded by the books. Yes, of course. Of course. Um, It is. I've uh, had it as my one uh, thing of clinging to uh, possessions and objects is uh, is books, uh, books, graphic novels, uh, art folios, all of those uh, kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. 
it's the childhood uh, obsession with having a library when you when you grow up and become an adult. So uh, so getting to actually you know uh, once you actually start collecting books, it's it, you know it's all it's all over from there. Yeah, I'm a big fan of books, and in I I geek out on the you know ranker and and BuzzFeed. They show you know top twenty libraries in the world, and it's these massive shelves of books with the long ladders that, that go all the way around the room. I just obsess over that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's get into you. You grew up in the Pacific Northwest? I did. I grew up in a little uh, a little town called Clarkston, Washington, uh, which is right across the uh, river from Lewiston, Idaho. So it's on the Washington-Idaho border. Uh, you cross a bridge. Uh, and for, for functional purposes, it feels all just like one town, but, uh, you cross the bridge and you're in Idaho and, and Lewiston. So it's the, and it was a pivotal part on the Lewis Clark trail. So it is Lewiston and Clarkston as a, as a result of that. Um, historically, uh, probably the biggest moment of notoriety is that, uh, Walt Disney, uh, got married there, uh, his wife. Uh, Lillian Bounds was from Lapway, which was the uh, Nez Perce Reservation, um, which is about five miles out. Uh, and her brother was the fire chief of Lewiston. So they got, uh, they got married in Lewiston, Idaho. And, uh, you know, everyone in Idaho uh, both constantly criticizes, uh, you know, these, these damn Californians coming in and ruining their life and simultaneously bragging nonstop about how Disney. Um, uh, you know, married his his wife in Idaho. So, I I think I've never considered Walt Disney as a married person. He he feels asexual to me. Well, it, you know, not that so asexual people that. can't get married. I'm just saying no. that I've never thought of him in terms <laughs> of of that. You know, a sexual being well, or whatever. I, I worked for Disney for three years, and uh, they give you the whole uh two day putting the mouse chip in your brain you know the the whole protocols of of mickey and uh making sure that you are thoroughly indoctrinated into the ways uh, and one of the things they give you is is waltz uh they, they give you a goodie bag quote unquote full of uh disney propaganda including uh waltz uh biography and you know i i have a lot of respect for him as uh, a human being and as an artist and as a, as a visionary, um, you know, it's one of those, one of those first examples for me of running up against the reality of, uh, someone can be incredibly smart, uh, incredibly creative, have great, brilliant ideas that, uh, truly add, uh, layers to, humanity the human experience etc cetera, etc cetera, and still have you know bad traits um and, and that's you know and that's true for all of us none of us are you know all good or all bad or um so you have to kind of look at the balance of it and i, and I think on on the balance i think that you know uh disney walt and uh and his brother roy were uh were very good people who actually pushed um both Hollywood and uh, the creative endeavors in a number of ways 
uh, whether you're talking television, whether you're talking animation, whether you're talking distribution of film uh, in a non-monopolistic way, ironically. Um, uh, my favorite, my favorite story in the in the Disney biography, which they give you, is that RKO um, held Snow White hostage for a sequel to Three Little Pigs because when Three Little Pigs came out, it was a blockbuster. And like, here's this, here's this, you know, short animated film that is so popular that it was the first uh, movie that had a hit song that, that actually like was doing, you know, millions and millions of dollars in sales just on the song alone. The, the short was so popular that they were having screenings of just the short and, and charging full price for it. So RKO was like, you know, you have to do a sequel to to three little pigs and Walt was like, I'm, I'm not going to do a sequel. That's, that's not the point of it. I'm, I'm doing snow white. And they said, well, we're not going to distribute snow white unless you do a sequel to three little pigs. And he refused. And Roy told him like, look, if you don't do this, uh, we're going to lose the studio. We're going to lose all of this work that's been done. You're going to have to fire everyone. We did, we're, we are between a rock and a hard place. So Walt did a sequel to three little pigs and it bombed. And his response to that was to create a plaque that is that he put on his desk, and it is still on his desk on the main lot uh, in and Walt Disney Studios. And it says, "You can't top pigs with pigs," meaning a sequel is never the answer to go. Ironically, a sequel is never the way to go. So I love it. Like you that. can't top pigs with pigs. That's going to be in my brain forever. I'd love that. And tell that to George Orwell. <laughs> yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Unless some pigs are, are more equal than others. Yeah, exactly. You, when you sent me your, your bio, uh, of course, first thing that stood out is you said your father was a grifter on the run. Well, my, uh, uh, so my dad never had a job for longer than a year. Um, he was, uh, in his words, a shuck and jive man. Um, he was always looking for what could elevate uh, him, make him money with both the least amount of effort possible and while uh, giving him notoriety, fame, whatever that is on a regional, local basis kind of thing. So, um, so he was always running cons. He was always running scams. Um, uh, and uh, my father and I did not have a, a great relationship, as you can imagine. Um, aside from all that, he was just... Um, I don't want to say he's a bad, he was a bad person, but he definitely... Um, he definitely had issues that he never... Um, confronted and he never came to terms with and uh everyone around him you know kind of suffered the consequences of that so um at a certain point uh i stopped even trying to talk with him because um it was it was always another excuse for why this con went wrong or this grift went wrong or or no no he has he's really changed this time um and then i find out after not hearing from him for three or four years that he's in the philippines married to his uh seven he, that he went first of all to the philippines to under the pretext of finding my half-sister uh which he 
sired uh, when he was in the Air Force. Um, and um, that's, uh, I, I don't think that he ever found her, but uh, so he ended up getting married to uh, a woman in her 20s while he was in his 70s. Uh, and uh, he was unable to uh, return to the States because um, the, both the FBI and the IRS had started investigating him for uh, different uh, fraud and, and scams and, and things that he was doing. And the reason I knew this was because uh, the FBI showed up on my front doorstep one time uh, because uh, my I was born R-E-N-C-E and I changed my name uh, when I was a junior in high school after my parents got divorced because my dad was uh, taking out credit cards and loans using my social security number. Oh, shit. So, um, so the FBI shows up thinking that, you know, uh, is this, is this, uh, Rance Hosley senior. Uh, and, and he's just changed the spelling to try and throw us off or, um, so yeah, so that was, that was fun. Um, so yeah. Oh my God. How long did it take you to work your credit back out after that happened? Cause I, I know that that happens that parents yeah. do that. My, I, like the first you know, 15 years of of life after high school was was pretty difficult because I would constantly get these things of of oh there was this loan taken out uh, in in the amount of eight thousand um, dollars and and you were liable for it and I'm like that's not me so um, so yeah so I, I had always said as a result that if I ever had a son that I would uh, not name him uh, the, after myself just because uh, I've I've seen what can go horribly wrong. Is your father still alive? No, he died uh, 2014, 2015 um, uh, in the Philippines. And, uh, and his uh, wife sent my sister and I pictures of the funeral in which she took selfies with, with him in the coffin. And I was just like, you know, that's 100% the, the only end that there could be to this story. It's, you know. Yeah. How does, when knowing that your relationship was strained with him for so long and even going, and you know, years without talking with him, how, when he dies, is there a release for you or do you feel like that's unfinished business? No, I mean, I, I was, uh, my, my father was very violent. He was very both verbally, uh, emotionally and physically abusive. Um, and so I was a very, very angry teenager. Uh, I was a very angry 20 something. And I had the, the best therapist I had when I was around 24, 25 told me that the anger that you've had, that you have is the thing that has allowed you to survive and succeed. Um, it allowed you to get away from the environment that you grew up in. It allowed you to distance yourself from all these things. But if you do not um, put it aside now, and if you don't learn to uh, deal with things in a different way, it's going to kill you. Mm -hmm. um, and she was right. And it took you know another 10 years for me to actually uh, actualize that and understand that on a cellular level rather than just say, yeah, 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 okay, whatever. Um, but by the time my dad died, um, I had given him chance after chance after chance. Um, 
Um, I'd, I was no longer angry with him in an aggressive way. And I, I had become a father, so I understood how difficult it can be uh, being a father. Um, so I had more empathy for, uh, for him from the standpoint of that he wasn't built for this. Yeah, you know, he really, there are some people that just aren't built to, to be parents psychologically, emotionally. Um, and also, um, I, I knew a lot of the stuff that um, because of talking with my cousins, because of talking with his brothers, the stuff that his mother had done, um, the stuff that he had gone through, um, it didn't make uh, any excuses for his behavior, but it put things in context. So mm -hmm. by the time by the time he died, it was really a non-existent thing. There wasn't, there wasn't any anger to resolve. There wasn't any feeling of um, things left unfinished. Um, it was, you know, and there honestly wasn't even any real feelings of sadness because it was just at, at that point, um, he was just a person. I didn't have any kind of, uh, I, I didn't have any relationship to mourn and I didn't have any desire to, you know, of like what could have been like, I came to terms a long time ago with the fact that like there would never have been, that's just, that's just the way he was built. And, and there we go. And I've had, um, a couple of really close friends die within the last five years. Um, people that I, I would consider my best friends and, and unexpectedly. And, and with those, the, you know, that's an emotional impact that I'll feel and that has impacted, uh, me on a personal level and on, uh, on how I perceive the world, um, much, much deeper than, than I experienced with my dad dying. My dad dying, you know, the only emotional reaction was, was disbelief that his, his wife would send me selfies with him in the coffin. It was just like, what? Very weird. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. It, absolutely. It is interesting that we get to a point, I think, in our progress, if we're lucky, that we see our parents as separate. They came together, literally, and made a baby, yeah. but, well, maybe one of them did. We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we hope for their sake. <laughs> we hope for their sake. That, uh, that we can see them as these separate beings. It is a weird, it's like Frankenstein, right? Frankenstein created a monster and then abandoned him. And I think many a parent abandons their child in some way or another. And partly because they had to push him out of the nest, but also partly because, as you said, they don't have the skills. Maybe they were never meant to be a parent yeah. at all. Yeah. But society says you have to procreate, you have to do this thing to make you a viable human being. And uh, and to have your legacy and immortality and all of that, uh, but I think it's such a relief to realize, oh, my parents are their own people, and it doesn't mean I, you know, I don't have to, I'm, I don't have to be attached to them in the same yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that a lot, the the thing that I've kind of come to in the last five years from a from a creative standpoint in the, in the work, um, in the writing that I'm doing and stuff is that, um, it, it's become very apparent to me that we, 
we move through life without really giving people productive examples uh, in entertainment, uh, in, in our narratives, our, our stories of how uh, that, that allow people to see themselves and, and, and to allow people to model themselves in a, in a way that's more productive. So, you know, we, for the most part, you know, uh, film has become, you know, uh, uh, a haven of shit blows up real good. And, um, and genre uh, exploitation kind of stuff. And, and the irony is like, <clears throat> I say this as someone who grew up uh, learning to draw from comic books, who uh, loved comic books from the first moment he discovered them, and who uh, growing up as a, in elementary school, junior high, high school, wanted to draw comics more than anything. That was like, uh, because superheroes were the fucking shit, and I loved all this stuff. And if I never see another superhero film, uh, it that would be just completely perfectly fine. Because I think that it has, um, I, I think that genre entertainment and the prevalence of it um, has uh, encouraged a simplistic, reductive way of problem solving. Um, that solutions are binary, that there is good, that there is simply good and evil in it. Um, we don't talk about how difficult death is to deal with, um, and losing someone that you care about, um, and that it's not a thing that you really ever get over. We don't talk about how complex relationships are. You know, we, we get, um, we get uh, meet cute stories where it's like, oh, that's adorable. And then, and then, you know, and they're, they'll, you know, have some kind of falling out in the second act and the third act, you know, there'll be some ridiculous moment, and, and, you know, and it's, and it's all predictable and by the beats kind of thing. And then people, even, uh, you know, you ask folks and they'll say that uh, they don't, you know, they don't, they're not influenced by this stuff. But the thing is that we are. We're influenced by by the stories that we that we by everything right and and if those things aren't given as uh, if we don't have examples of how people willingly work through conflicts, um, I, I think that um, uh, for instance, Halt and Catch Fire, a uh, TV series, is phenomenal for many reasons. But one of the reasons I love it is because it's it really shows the difficulty of navigating relationships, even if you care about someone, even if you love someone, even if you're um, creatively meant to be with them as a partner, like that you work well together, that that, that doesn't necessarily guarantee it's going to work out because these things are difficult and there's no judgment in that. That is, um, all of us are just trying to get, you know, trying to get through this thing. So... Safety is uh, never guaranteed. Uh, maybe that's why you were more drawn to the comics, uh, is because a l many of this, in my opinion, and from what I've read of comic books, a lot of the superheroes come from these tragic beginnings, and they are they are in touch with their shadow side. They're vigilante, but it's it comes from a place of darkness a lot of times. They're yeah. they're trying to help the, the underdog because they they themselves are the underdog. They may not even touch that in themselves but that's what propels them forward 
Well, I think that, you know, I think that that absolutely is part of it. The, especially as a kid, like you, uh, I, to be clear, I don't think that this is the case anymore. I, I'm, I'm, you know, speaking from a uh, consuming comic books experience in the 70s, 80s, 90s um, is a very different experience than consuming comics now. Um, I, I would say that, um, and I say this to someone who is the editor at a comic book company, that, that superhero comics, uh, monthly comics were a much purer, much more close to the metal experience because it, um, there was an immediacy to it and there was a, a kind of primacy to it in that you're tapping into, um, what it feels like to, especially with like, for instance, like X-Men or Teen Titans, what it feels like to not fit in and, and to, to be able to find your own tribe. I think that that's um, why, uh, and, and why I don't think I know that that's why a lot of friends of mine who were, uh, who were gay growing up in the eighties, like really attached onto uh, the X-Men because it was for them, it was this model of like, I'm, I'm not like everyone else, you know, or, or the, the everyone else that the world shows me. And, uh, as a result, um, you know, you can either be alone or you can find your own family. And the idea of found family is a very strong thing. Um, but to me, the, the, the stories that were interesting in the X-Men were like the stories were like the one-off issues where they had a down day and they're playing baseball and having a picnic, you know? Um, and I should have twigged into that, uh, you know, in, in a more conscious level earlier, rather than, you know, spending years and years of my life, uh, doing science fiction and, and genre entertainment and, and then finally coming to the conclusion of like, oh, I, I should just tell stories about people. So, well, you know, and television back then, especially as you were saying, what was appearing on the TV screen was certainly not real life. The leave it to beavers. That was not real life. The Cosby's real life compared to what that was you know talk about a severe difference well it's it's also interesting because like if you look at like um if you look at television especially sitcoms in the 70s you had um shows like chico and the man you had shows like good times you had shows like sanford and son which mm -hmm. were showing what um what life was like in a comedic sense and good times was very gritty it showed it was a very powerful show Right. So, I mean, you have you have um, you have examples of people who are not white and middle class uh, living life in an urban environment um, and and their life is just as va uh, valid and valuable and all of these things. And and to me, that, you know, that's an incredibly powerful thing. And by the 80s, by the Reagan years, that stuff's gone. Like like we're the only the only black family you'll see on TV is the Cosby show. Which is, which is, you know, uh, for all intents and purposes, functioning as a, you know, you have two doctors who, you know, so it's, it's success on a, on a white matrix, on a white experience rather than, um, rather than, okay, what are, you know, what, what is uh, your community experience? Um, um, it's a, and not saying that, you know, obviously. obviously. No, I, I know. But, 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 I, but I'm saying that yeah. the spectrum of experience all of a sudden becomes this very narrow, like, okay, this is how white middle class will accept this. And that's, to me, that's a real fucking tragedy that we've never really pushed back from. I mean, we're starting to see 
more, um, we're starting to see more diversity in terms of viewpoints, in terms of narratives, in terms of uh, storytelling styles. But we're still, in a lot of ways, like, you know, the irony is we're, we're diversifying in these ways in, because of all of these very um, niche targets as far as venues. With, with all the streaming services, you have the ability to, to micro-target an audience. Um, but something like Sanford and Son, something like Chico and the Man, something like Welcome Back, Cotter, um, was mainstream every single kid that you went to school with uh, saw that and could quote mm-hmm. lines from that and knew that. And, and there's, there's a part of that that, we, that we, we're not going to have because we don't have that kind of narrow channel thing. So Yeah, you know, the Cosby show was interesting because it did show... I, I think it's important to see yourself on television. So for people that had had the experience of seeing struggling black families and now they see this super successful black family, that's an important message. But also, I think it's important to show the other because not only is it important to people of color to see, oh, this family struggles like my family struggles, it's important for a white family to see a show like Good Times and know, oh, they struggle just like we do, to actually break down those walls that separate us because we are not only seeing the difference, but mostly we're seeing the sameness that we can wrap our yeah. head around the uh, emotional intelligence of it all. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, for me, film and TV growing up in this little rural town of, of 7,000 people, um, which was as white as you can get. Um, we had one Chinese family that ran the one Chinese restaurant in town. That was the, the only non-white family um, within the city limits. And um, so those things, uh, those television shows and, and uh, foreign films uh, uh, were really powerful insights uh, and, and viewpoints to me in a pre-internet age of like, there, there's a bigger world out there. And it was... It was absolutely the thing that lit the fire under my ass to like, okay, the second I, uh, the day after I graduated high school, I was in my car driving to Los Angeles. Um, and because that was the world I wanted to be part of. I wanted a world that was bigger and richer and more interesting and that had a diversity of thought and influence and experience and all of those things like that. That to me was seemed just intoxicating and and really attractive, as opposed to like you know everyone knows not only you but your parents, your grandparents, your entire family lineage. Everyone knows your business, and you know. Before we put you in the car and go to L.A., you also <laughs> mentioned that. Now I was confused by the wording of it. Was it a scoutmaster who was a serial killer, or was it the assistant to the? Sc- you were an assistant to a scoutmaster, who was. A, I, I got confused on the. No, my assistant scoutmaster was a serial killer. Yeah. So, and he also was uh, involved with the civic theater where I was uh, involved because again, small town. So. Um, so yeah, um, the <laughs> the story, the story, like the the meeting that uh, that happened for the last 
I don't know, five, six years with studio execs and, and producers was, and we'd be talking about life and stuff. And I, and I would mention, Oh yeah, my, my assistant scoutmaster was a serial killer. And, um, and that would be followed with like, well, where's that fucking script? And, you know, and the problem was that, um, I didn't know what the angle was for me personally on it because, um, he's still alive. He was never charged. He lives in North Carolina as a retired, uh, postal delivery person. Um, the problem is that the, because we're talking on the Washington, Idaho border, uh, there are five towns, um, three states and four counties all within 40 miles of each other. Um, that's so, a great place for a serial killer to live. It, it, it's a perfect killing field. It really is. Because here's the thing. Also, there's mountains, there's forests, there's rivers, there's lakes. There's lots of places to get rid of bodies. And um, Pacific Northwest period is great for yeah. a serial killer. And in a pre uh, FBI centralized database era, um, the, it's really, really easy to uh, get lost in um, uh, the arguments over who has jurisdiction over things. Yeah. Which is, so a lot of evidence got lost or got mishandled. Um, there was a lot of jurisdictional uh, pissy matches that occurred. And so um, he was never charged. Uh, the evidence that exists uh, combined with um, uh, so, some other experiential stuff uh, makes, you know, uh, both the, the sheriff's department uh, in the area and uh, a number of us locally 100% sure uh, that, um, that that's the guy. Yeah. Is it, was it uh, children or adults that he killed? Uh, adults allegedly uh, uh allegedly well no the, the the people that were killed were women uh with one exception who we believe was a happenstance uh situation um all of them with uh a variant name of chris christina uh kristen um all bondish um all you know uh early 20s so um yeah the the first notable killing the well the the first body was discovered uh, on the fourth of july on uh 1980 and um uh i had dropped out of boy scouts oh well excuse me i got kicked out of boy scouts um let's be clear um uh and I went to uh, get involved with the Lewis and Civic Theater, uh, and he was uh, one of the people who helped build sets and did janitorial work around the theater and that. And uh, three of the people who got killed disappeared from the uh, Civic Theater, two women and a, and a man. And they never found uh, Stephen Pearsall, who was the man who disappeared, but they found um uh the bodies of the two women a year and a half after they disappeared uh in a ravine off of uh one of the highways uh in the surrounding area so um 
Yeah. So, I mean, the, 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 you know, the whole thing was he was never caught. So then what's the story there? You know, this isn't a whodunit. This isn't, um, um, a, you know, there's no, there's no happy end here. Why do you think it's him? Uh, well, like, you know, who else makes prop swords for the pirates of Penzance that are made out of airplane grade steel that are razor sharp? And that, uh, and that he demonstrates this by throwing melons into the air and slicing them in half. Um, uh, what was the manner of death for the women? Uh, uh, dismemberment and... Oh, yeah, fun. Uh, fun yeah, times. So, yeah. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, I mean, so, so, the, so the whole you know, question is like, where does this, you know... But where, where's the through line? There was what's the story, and and the thing that hit me a couple of years back uh, after my dad died was that it's not, um, it's not about the murders. It's about how in uh, in rural America, um, predominantly white rural America, how a there's a systemic uh, attitude of toxic masculinity. And and uh, a degree of acceptable violence that's allowed, you know. You you know it's it's expected you get in fights. It's expected that you, um, if your woman acts up, you push her around, you keep her in line. These you know this kind of fucking bullshit. And um, in that kind of environment, um, there's a really really thin line between that, you know, what is acceptable violence and actual murder. Um, the 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 oxymoron of of the of the town in the area is that it's always you know touted as like oh it's this perfectly safe it's this perfectly wonderful thing um you know until you look at the fact that when i started doing research in the 18 uh in the late 1800s um a third of the population of lewiston was chinese and they had the prime real estate downtown and um and mysteriously, the all of the Chinese-owned buildings were set afire, and and um, all of the white citizens just sat and watched and didn't try and stop it. And then, after it was burned to the ground and people had died, they just uh, moved in and built on top of it, took the space for themselves. Classic. Yep. So there is a lot of. Uh, there's a lot of really, you know, uh, horrible things that get pushed under the uh, under the carpet, as it were. So that that became the thread of it. It was the fact that, like, um, and using the, the parallels between domestic violence and um, if you're if you're experiencing terror via domestic violence via a parent being violently abusive to you, um, really, how much does it scare you to know the bodies are showing up? You know, it, it's all part of the same thing. Were you aware as a kid? Did you have feelings around this person? Or were you having to deal with your own stuff with your dad? Here's the fucked up thing. is like, I didn't know that he was the suspect. None of, none of the kids knew that he was the suspect. Um, but the parents knew. Parents knew. This is like a Freddy Krueger situation. The parents not only knew, they didn't tell us, avoid him. They would just say like, well, don't be alone with him. Like you're going, you're going to the cast party. Well, don't be alone with that guy. But it sounded like he was acting out some sort of 
fantastical against someone specific body type name type yeah i don't know i mean i i you know <laughs> he's you know it, it is on record that um when he was in his 20s he got arrested for breaking into a funeral parlor uh with a knife um where a the body of a woman was um that he had uh reported to the police that she drowned herself committed suicide and he witnessed it um so you know there, there's there's damage and then there's you're just flat out fucked up so necrophilia uh, throw that into the the mix yeah it's not for the whole family so so i wonder if bodies uh, have followed him where he is now uh i don't know uh, I, I know that here, you know, North Carolina is, is, you know, also a lot spot. of woods. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, and, and also, you know, as, you know, as we've seen again and again in, in serial killing or spree killings that like, these are, these aren't things that go away. Once no, the, they may sleep the, for a while. And it's yeah. also white women tend to get noticed when they go missing far, far yeah. more than any anyone else so maybe yeah how many what, what was the the count in in your town then was it the three or were there more there's uh or i guess four with the drowning well, there, there, there's six that they've attributed to in a seven-year span um and but there's been dozens uh that disappear and that um that people say well you know she probably met a boy and, and left. Classic. She probably ran off. You know, she always was trouble kind of thing or, you know, these things. Mm. So, wow. Uh, you would think that the FBI would be trying to flush him out at this because now the DNA and uh, we've come so far with forensic. Yeah, but the problem is that the all of the DNA related evidence uh, has either been tampered with or contaminated or, you know. Um, there's, there's no clean evidence there's that, that can be said like, Oh, here's, you know, here, here's a, here's a strand of hair that was found, you know, in his vehicle that we can now test. Like the, the thing to keep in mind most, uh, especially at that time, most rural law enforcement, uh, is elected into position, uh, via the friend system. Like, Oh, Jimmy Joe's uh, grandfather was sheriff, you know, he'll make a great deputy sheriff kind of thing. Um, <laughs> so you just end up with this. Well, and, and what law enforcement training have you had? Mm. And you have created a film based on this story now, or are you working on the script now? No, the, the script's done. Uh, we took it around the end of last year to studios and the studios and production companies were very positive about it. And, uh, the reaction was also like, this is, this is really great. And also you do need to direct this. Um, and, but we're not going to fund it because you haven't directed anything live action. All the, all the directing experience I have to date is animation. So, my uh my solution to that was to uh deal with another story 
uh, to do a short story uh, script that deals with a lot of the same uh, production problems. So set in a small town, dealing with kids and cast, um, uh, using a lot of environmental elements from that specific region, um, and uh, dealing with a lot of the theme- same themes. So uh, childhood alienation, um, parental abuse, um, uh, the emotional conflict between uh, father and son, etc. Um, and ran a Kickstarter uh to fund it uh got the crew all lined up and then in the first of march the plan was to shoot it uh starting march 31st for the three days and we'd be done and by the 8th of march we're like i think maybe we should consider uh postponing the shoot because we because we were watching the the number of cases in washington just grow exponentially and and i was like if someone uh, gets sick, and, and at this point we didn't even really have any clue as to how bad it could get, um, but I was like, if if someone gets sick because of uh, I'm working on a movie of mine, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna not be able to live with myself. I'm gonna feel horrible about that. Um, so we postponed it. We figured like, oh well, we'll shoot in July. Um, yeah, and here we are. We still haven't shot, um, and. So last week, uh, I started looking at the script and trying to figure out, like, how can I rework that script to get the same emotional beats, the same narrative thrust, the same themes, all of these things uh, within the same budget and have it be COVID safe? Because there's a scene, for instance, in the current script where there's a classroom full of 10 year old kids. Um, And you cannot safely have a classroom of 10 year old kids that don't have masks that are, you know, throwing paper balls at each other and, you know, being generally, you know, the little shits that 10 year olds are. So, um, so yeah, um, hopefully I, I've got some ideas for solutions on that and, uh, we'll, we'll see if we can make that happen. Uh, hopefully at the end of the year, beginning of next year, they, you know, it's a, it's a twofold thing. One is finding a, a solution that, uh, reduces the risk, and also it's keeping an eye on the number of cases uh, regionally um, and making sure that they aren't growing, uh, especially since they've started opening schools in Idaho and in Washington right now. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, it did put quite the wrench into things, didn't it? It certainly did. Like I, I, my all, I had wonderful plans for 2020. You know, and, and and then 2020 just cackled. Yes, so. that's right. It it stared back. <laughs> 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 Let's get you on the in the car heading to L.A. So you get to L.A. and I mean your your bio is wacky. I've had an interesting <laughs> life. Um, I had. Well, you ended up on Tori Amos's couch, which is crazy. So I I drove um I drove to L.A. went to art school uh for a year um and while i was at art school i hooked up with this girl that was in the dorms uh, and we had this little month-long whatever thing and um and i knew no one in la uh, I, I i had i had come down and worked um on i had done storyboards on a long form music video thing called motown's mustang 
um, the summer after my sophomore year in high school um, and looked at art schools in LA and decided that, yes, I was going to do this. Um, and was really, uh, I, I did not have a robust support system. So um, the, which is both great and, and terrifying. Uh, the, the great aspect of it is that you're very open to meeting people. You're very open to having experiences because you don't, you don't have any sense of like, oh, this could be dangerous or this could be horrible or whatever. You're just like, hey, let's, you know, let's see what's out there. So this girl said, this friend of mine uh, needs help moving. Will you help her? And, and I was like, I don't know. And she's like, she's like, she's a really talented musician. You know, um, uh, I, I think you'll get along. Um, so I went and helped her move. And Tori at the time was playing piano at the Holiday Inn out uh, at the airport. And um, we got along like gangbusters. And uh, the girl and I, uh, had a falling out shortly after that, but Tori and I remained uh, uh, really great friends uh, since then. And you know, I would uh, I, I, we would chat back and forth about. I, I was working on uh, during the what eighty six to eighty nine eighty eight period. I was working on a lot of music videos, so I did like storyboards for like uh, Aerosmith and and Scorpions, and and was working with uh, director Marty Colner, who at the time did if any good music video was done, Marty was the guy doing it, um, and uh, he was fantastic to work with. Um, and so when Tori was doing uh, the Why Can't Tori Read album. And she was like, well, what I'm going to, what am I going to do for the music video? And I, I said, you need to have Marty do it. I'll, I'll introduce you. And, and so Marty did the video for the big picture, uh, which is the only single that came out off of that album. And you can actually see me getting my crotch spray painted by Tori. I think it's like around the minute four uh, mark on it. And um. Then I, I, I had moved back to Washington, was trying to figure out like what I was going to do with my life because art school, uh, I decided that that was a waste of money uh, because uh, my coping strategy for my first year in art school was to be high or drunk most of the time. Um, and I still got all A's and B's. And I thought like I'm paying this kind of money. And I, and I literally don't remember anything from, from these classes. So that seems like a waste of money. So uh, let me figure out what I'm going to do with my life. Uh, so I would, I went back to Washington and was going down to LA for like three months at a time, four months at a time. And, and uh, there was this show that called the Simpsons that was going to come out based on some stuff that Matt Groening was doing. And, and they were looking for artists and storyboard artists and things like that. And I was like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to take a swing at this. So uh tori said well you can crash on my couch and um while you're while you're doing the audition stuff for it so um so for that entire summer she was in the process of finishing up the recording of little earthquakes um and i was uh auditioning for the simpsons which i did not get uh my roommate from art school uh ended up becoming the color director uh for the simpsons though so um and it's you know it's a fantastic uh uh, fantastic summer. The the you know, the the album uh, is uh, is an iconic album. It is indeed. Yeah. Uh, 
yeah, so I mean, I know it was uh it, it took until two thousand eight for for her and I to actually get to work on a on a big project uh together, which is uh when we did comic book tattoo, so which was the the graphic novel anthology of of uh fifty one stories inspired by and based on her songs so uh which ended up winning me the eisner award and the harvey award and and uh again so it's like yes okay so some people would say that's a chaotic life living on credit cards and on on uh on couches but you know it's also like you know um you're open to the strangeness and opportunities of of the moment you have to leap. You, I mean, that's the yeah. thing about being in the artistic realm is there. show up. Just keep showing up. God knows what's going to yeah. happen, but, and there's a lot, it's the roller coaster from hell sometimes, but then you're available for these great moments that will absolutely change your life. Yeah, and it's not... Um, and saying yes. If you hadn't said yes to helping yeah. someone move. Yeah. Well, and, and, and the thing is that, you know, um, there is a tendency within the entertainment community for relationships to be transactional, for it to be very like, oh, I'll help you if you can help me on this. And, and I understand that because part of that's business. But to me, the thing that is always... Um, I, I think from a, a karmic standpoint uh, or just being a good human being or whatever, it's like, it's a much better thing just to be there for people to, to have relationships based on like, do you like this person? Do you like this person's ideas? Do you like their outlook on life? You know, do you like their energy or however you want to look at it? Do you connect with them? Right. And, and success is a crapshoot and being a good human being isn't be a good human being. And, right. and either the six, it depends on what your idea of success is as well. Is success having, you know, the, the smog gold or is it looking uh, yourself in the mirror and liking what you see? Yeah. And I mean, that's that, I think that's a huge, I, I think that's one of the biggest lessons that, you know, again, academically, you know, these things, you know, academically, you know, like, oh, there's more important things than money. Right. Um, but in, until like growing up dirt fucking poor, like like you know powdered milk and government cheese and government egg noodles poor, you know, um, getting to work at Disney is it was for me the holy grail because it's like oh my god, like I never have to explain to anyone what it means when I say that I'm an art director at Disney. Like that's self-explanatory and, and they pay me, you know, they're paying me 85,000 a year, which in 19, you know, 97 money is huge money. Um, and I get quarterly bonuses. They're five figures. So it's like, this is, this is fantastic. And yet I developed a three martini drinking habit, uh, for lunches in order to not kill my boss. I gained 80 pounds. Um, I missed my eldest daughter's first year of life pretty much because I was working 16 hour days, six days a week. Um, and I, and it was absolutely an utterly miserable experience. I love the people that I worked with, but the, the working experience itself, 
it was one of those things where it's a concrete uh now you can understand this on a cellular basis that money is not worth misery um and and it and it just isn't um i I think that the, the thing for me over the again going back to like the, there was a pretty significant change over the last five years of of coming to the realization of like okay let's assume that you're going to die tomorrow or you know give yourself a little runway let's assume you're going to die in a month right so what uh what regrets do you have and and the regret is never um um Boy, I, you know, I, I wish I got to walk the red carpet at, you know, whatever. Um, because for me, the thing that lasts uh, is, the, is, the, is the human impact, you know, that you leave behind. And whether it's through interpersonal relationships or whether it's through a story that impacts someone long after you're gone, you know. Um, that's those are the things that you know for me personally that i came to the conclusion that it's like i have to feel and especially in the conclusions of of the 2016 election it was like um i'm not a politician i don't have the patience for it i don't have the um i have the ability to not swear at people um or you know um I, I will say that I used to say that I could never do politics because of, of my chemical past and because of my, my profanity and, and all these things. Not all bets are off now. Yeah. Yeah. So who knows? Uh, but, um, but the things that I can, I can do is maybe uh, tell stories that make people feel a little less alone or mm-hmm. feel seen. Um, and, you know, uh, it's a much harder road to hoe. It would be a much easier thing if I just stayed on the path that I was on uh, writing adaptations of science fiction books for studios. It pays better. It's uh, I have all the connections already for that. So it's, you know, those are easy phone calls to make, but I just felt like um, that I was contributing negative things to the overall psyche of the world. Um, and that's not a judgment against anyone doing any kind of genre work. I am totally fucking looking forward to the, to the new version of Dune. I fucking love Dune. Great Um, book. I'd love that book. It looks so good. Um, but, um, but for me personally, it's like, I'm like, no, there's, I'm more interested in, uh, in like the films, you know, like, um, like white material or Itu Mama Tambian where, you know, you're dealing with um, the friction of the individual or, or of couples or relationships trying to navigate through uh, uh, the weirdness of life. Did you like yeah. Moonlight? I love Moonlight. Great film. Um, I, I, got very, uh, I got very drunk with Barry Jenkins and sang karaoke with him uh, two years before Moonlight came out at, at a WGA conference um, and, and didn't realize it until, until he won uh, the Oscar. And I'm like looking at the picture, I'm going, wait. And then I like look at the pictures from the conference, I'm going, oh my God, I've gotten drunk and done karaoke with that guy. So um, I, I thought I thought Moonlight was fantastic. I think honestly, uh, I think Barry's one of the best 
uh, filmmakers that, that's currently working now uh, in, in, in the new stuff. And, it, and, it, and it's hard because like, to me, those are, I, I am a, I'm a pretentious uh, criterion loving asshole that, that wants, uh, wants grander cinema. Um, I, I think that, uh, but I think the stuff that Barry's doing, I think the stuff that uh, Chloe Zhao's doing uh, with like uh, songs my brother uh, taught me are are old school cinema, like like in this way that it's this rich and powerful thing that could only be done in film. It's it's not uh, you're taking advantage of the specificity of the medium to tell a story that impacts on a very personal and very individual and very human level. And I think that the thing that's fantastic about, about films like Moonlight, um, uh, see it also in, in films like Hell or High Water. Um, uh, Tangerine, or, uh, The Florida Project, all of those films. I, 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 th- I thought Tangerine was fantastic. Oh, so good. It, the, the, the thing with films like that is it's the specificity of the narration of the narrative of the point of view of the experience that makes it universal uh for the audience because mm-hmm. you know there's there's the ability to place yourself into that that moment and to feel what they're feeling because the, there is this very real very realized um point of view to it so so that's what i'm trying to do with with all of these these uh features with uh you know serial killers aside like i'm i'm not i'm not doing any serial killers now i'm i'm i've moved on to um 1978 in the uh in the Oregon coast uh and uh so yeah <laughs> do you have a working title for the serial killer movies that when it comes out people will uh, the the serial killer uh feature is called and then um because uh, again because I'm that pret- that pretentious Criterion collection loving guy, it's um, it's the thing that uh, nothing ends. Mm. That the, there isn't, there's a, not a clean end to any of this. Mm. That there's um, there's the trauma we suffer. There's ideally the lessons we learn from it, and there is uh, hopefully a better path forward. But the path you know, uh, the path doesn't end. We just hand off the, the baton to the next generation. And hopefully uh, we do that with as little friction and as little pain as possible. But, you know, as a, as a parent, it's, it's impossible to, um, it's impossible to do that because part of the experience of being human is to, is to have friction and to have pain and to learn from it. Um, and, you know, you're, you're going to do things wrong because you're human, um, you know, and, and hopefully, you know, you don't do things too wrong. Uh, and, and, and the, the good way, you know, always the bad in terms of your, what you, what you hand on to the next generation, your kids or your nieces or nephews or, you know, friends, kids that you babysit or whatever. How old are your children? Um, I have four daughters. Um, they are uh, 22 through 19. So, have you had the conversations with them about 
I am my own human, you're your own human, that, that aspect of life. I, 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 think, I, think it's, I think it's getting to that point, mm. you know, um, for a right or wrong, I, take the, I kind of take the philosophy of it that um, to allow them the space to to uh, make up their own minds about things, to come to their own conclusions about things, um, and try and be there to to listen, to talk, to all these things, and and you know, and it's difficult, especially in COVID times, because there's distance. Um, mm-hmm. um, one of my daughters is uh, my eldest is up in Washington, uh, and my younger three younger are in san diego and i'm you know in los angeles so um there's the there's the physical different distance of that uh, but it's i don't know it, it's the it's the thing of trying to allow the space that they can um manifest their own ideas and not feel like i'm didactically preaching to them that like, well, this is what life is about, and this is what it is. Because uh, God knows I can have that tendency to to be uh, self righteous and uh, arrogant about all these things. So, um, yeah, it, it, it is it is a it is a uh, it is a difficult uh, thing, you know, yeah. to to know to know like when to when to go forward and when to pull back, when to allow space and when to be present. And, um, and again, these are, you know, these are the things that, um, I did not have a, a father that was present. Uh, I was very blessed that my mom, uh, is an amazing human being. Uh, she was a elementary school teacher for 35 years. Uh, she's incredibly creative, incredibly kind, incredibly giving. Um, you know, and uh, I know that I would, I would pretty much be uh, not where I am in life uh, if I hadn't had her example. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's still, you know, it's one of those things of like you. There's no real user's manual <laughs> on any of this stuff. So, and the, and there's not a there's not a lot of examples, uh, you know, of like here's how you know, here's how you be, you know can be a good parent. So, like, whenever I would see friends of mine before I was a parent, uh, they would have kids, and like, and they seemed to get it right. I was like, "Oh, that's what I want to try and do," and and then you proceed to not do the thing. <laughs> We're all doing the best we can. Ugh, I I don't have children, but I I do appreciate how difficult it must be to to raise kids, especially. I mean, who knows? Everything is comparative, but I think especially these days. But raising kids in the fifties was probably interesting too. So, uh, I don't know. Well, it's the it's it's the thing of like. So I belong to this this Facebook group, uh, which is a uh, you're probably from Lucent and Clarkston uh, thing, which is a which is a regional thing that is largely built up uh just on memories uh and and so you have people posting you know images from the 1800s through you know the 80s and all that and people talking about their different experiences and what they remember and uh bonfires and all this stuff and the thing that is like really really clear to me with with 
you know, watching because my mom grew up in that same town, uh, in, in that same area. She grew up in Lewiston, uh, went to Lewiston high school and I mm-hmm. went to, and I went to Clarkston and was, and was senior class president. So if there's ever evidence that being senior class president means absolutely fucking nothing and, and has, you know, no merit or value to it, this would be, you know, one of those perfect examples, um, that the, there's, um, the things that you think are unique to your generation, uh, for the most part as a human experience are not, you know, the, the ideas of, you know, of sex, of not being able to communicate with your parents, of, you know, wanting, uh, the desires of youth, you know, whether it's wanting a car, whether it's wanting, you know, independence, whether it's wanting people to like you, whether it's wanting people to see you for who you really are, all these things. Um, I think the big difference, um, I'm going to sound really, really old and crotchety here, but uh, I think about this shit a lot because as a, as a writer, you know, you, you break these things down, you know, in, in trying to bring characters to life. But the, the thing for me that's the difference is that um, as a weird kid growing up in the 80s um, and who knew other weird people in weird in quotes, uh, i.e. not homogeneous, ati- you know, typical kind of uh, go-with-the-flow kind of people in, in small-town America um, from previous generations. You had to really work and put in effort to define who you were. You, ha- you had to do the research. You had to, you had to uh, make effort to find your tribe, you know? You, you had to do road trips uh, when you heard about um, a new wave dance night uh, that was at one of the local college towns 40 miles away, you know, and you had to not only make the drive up there without having a car and not having public transportation, but you actually had to figure out how you were going to sneak in underage into this thing just so you could hear music that was your kind of thing. Um, or, or that, you know, and, and, and also like the discovery of music, you know, the discovery of, of, you know, new wave and punk and, and, um, goth industrial, all these things. It's like, what's your gateway for that? And, and then how do you, you know, branch out from that? You know, the, the idea of information being passed through zines, which are passed person to person to person, you know, this is how you build your tribe. This is how you build your identity. This is how you, because also here's the thing. Um, music, uh, you know, uh, today, and I know this is a gross generalization. There are exceptions to the rule. Caveats aside, music today sucks, you know? Um, and, and part of that is because, because of the effort that we had to make in order to find your tribe, to find your identity, to, to define yourself. It also went to the same thing of defining um, what you had to say. So as a writer, if you had something to say, if you wanted people to pay attention to what you had to say, you had to do the woodshedding with, with the writing to make sure that it was fantastic, that it was as bulletproof as possible. And you could see the, the arc of someone becoming also by listening to their body of work. 
exactly and and music it's like you know you you would woodshed you would play bar gigs you would play every crappy little you know backyard party and that in order to write your own music in order to figure out what you had to say in order to figure out what got over on the audience what what conveyed in them the reaction that you wanted mm-hmm. um and, and those things you know those things took time and and took refinement to figure out how you could weaponize what you had to say and and that if effective then uh got you attention people would actually pay attention to what you were doing and what you had to say and now the problem is with social media we can bleed off all these things like like if you have this impulse of rage it's something that that donnie shitfingers is doing in the white house you know you can simply you can simply just bleed it off on on twitter or on instagram or on facebook you know it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't build up and coalesce from from a from a lump of coal into a hard diamond of anger that mm-hmm. then that then becomes the core of a song or that becomes the core of an essay or that becomes the core of any of these things and yeah. I, I don't think i don't think it's coincidental that we don't see those kinds of things you don't see um words as protest <laughs> right right you you don't you don't see manifestos you don't mm-hmm. see people um putting out declarative stances that then then organize and unify people into uh, a movement you know we we have the ability ironically to connect with people on a much faster basis and and to organize protests marches and all this but um you know a, a perfect example is like the defund the police you know thing it, it's like that becomes a viral hashtag event without any with, with with the majority of people you know if you say to the common person on the street what do you know of defund the police they're not going to be able to tell you what the stance of that is because again the you go into the difference of of activism in the 60s and the 70s or in the 80s and and you look at uh the statements that accompanied the declaration right. of movement because it's like these things these things have been workshopped they have been talked yeah. about they have been refined to like this this is the problem this is what we demand this is how we measure success right and you had the rage against the machines or nwa or the cranberries or in the beginning u2 or uh sex pistols any of these bands that were working out or the clash the clash is a great yeah. example yeah exactly exactly mm-hmm. and and it becomes um so, so you end up with with things that are there. there there's you know, there, there's there's you know, there's no there's no backbone to it. You know, this pop expressionism kind of thing. And 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 the, the thing that that bothers me is that I just see um, in a lot of current art in in quotes uh, a lot of sameness, a lot of you know, drawing from the same influences. Like you, whereas you look at you know uh, people. You know, from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, they're having to figure out like, oh, I like this. What's my version of that? Mm. You know, what's I, I, I love this, you know, uh, I love this obscure Austrian artist. You know, what's what's my take on what what she did? There's uh, such a desire today also to have someone hit a like button in the grander scheme of yeah. things so you want to be liked and so the homogeny seems like the the easiest path to being liked well yeah because it's gamified 
like the, mm-hmm. the, the one of the, you know, I got out of, uh, did software and video game development for 17 years as a creative director. And the, uh, one of the things that really pushed me to the point of like, okay, I can't do this anymore was, um, the intent as an industry to gamify all software experiences. Um, so to put that in context, the, the point of gamification is a reward system that's addicting. Um, it is to trigger that, uh, that primal level of response um, that you, you know, the, the joke's always made of like, you know, rats in the cage with the lever, you know, getting the, getting the treats. And, and that's, that's it boiled down is to um, figure out what triggers those responses and and what uh triggers those responses in a low effort way that can then level up so leveling up on this is followers uh what is the initial trigger is likes what is um the the mastery of it is in the case of twitter it's retweets um you know and there's all these levels of and I, and I say this as someone who there, who very clearly benefits from social media, like the last, you know, eight jobs that I've gotten have been directly because of Facebook and Twitter. Um, uh, it, it is, it is a very powerful tool, but it is also a very powerful tool that gets abused and misused a lot. And I think that it has, um, ironically in a world that, that sits there and talks about, you know, um, the value of different viewpoints of, of uh, different methods of expression of all these things that it's become a very reductive, simplistic um, uh, kind of conversation that, that it's like, if I, if I disagree with what you're saying, you're canceled. If I don't, uh, if I don't agree with you, you are, it is a moral judgment that you're a bad person rather than actually uh, opening up a discussion of like, okay, I disagree with you. Here's how I feel about this. Why are you? And, and these are discussions that we would have in person. You know, um, if you're, if you're a kind person and not, you know, an arrogant asshole. Um, but there are, for instance, friends of mine who are conservative, who I can, or, or lean conservative, we'll say, who I can have discussions uh, on politics about because it's done with mutual respect. And there's also the runway of us having um, shared experience that I know who they are as a human being. They know who I am as a human being. They know that I am coming from a position of good faith as they are. Um, I'm not trying to do a gotcha. I'm not trying to win because that's also the thing. Oh yeah. The win. Yeah. The the, the championship level thing. Yeah. (laughs) It's it's the last, it's the last word. That's the ultimate burn because then I've won Mm. and look, I got, I got, I got 500 followers from that sick burn. That's the, that's, you know, how we've completely fucking destroyed ourselves. It's interesting because you being a, a, a person that has been in the video game world and what you know what was that movie uh that was within a video game it was from a, a really popular book they put every product placement in the world in it um uh, ready player one that's it ready player one that it becomes very meta our existence yeah. 
I know so many people that spend hours upon hours in video games and there is a desensitization that happens. There is the, um, or, or for that matter, a removal of one from this world as they go play around in the farming worlds and the second lives and all that. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's the, well, it's the, it's the change of value. It's the where, where does accomplishment, uh, where do my efforts reach accomplishment that gives me a sense of value? Right, and your brain doesn't know, your brain can't tell the difference of the feeling with killing somebody on a screen versus going out and killing someone. To the brain, it feels very much the same. Well, and here's the thing too, is that like, so when I was, uh, when I was in video game development, you know, we would get very uh, heated and angry about uh, people like Joe Lieberman, you know, saying that, you know, video games were destroying the youth. And, sure. And all. Or the tipper gores uh, of music. <laughs> yeah, yeah, ex- exactly. And, and, and the thing is, it's like because it's a restriction, you know, you're trying to restrict creativity. Um, and I, and I, still, uh, I still believe that. There are films that I never want to watch. Uh, there, there are... Uh, books I have no desire to read, but I will 100% defend. Of course, to, to do those things because, if nothing else, it's um, it's an interesting insight into how other people perceive, look at things. Right. Um, I just think consumerism should be on a on a, a level of consciousness, not a level of unconsciousness. Right, and the well, again, it's the idea that. Um, with with media becoming um, like okay, to rewind a bit, you know the the discussion is like, well, you know, your parents didn't, you know, your parents being my generation, uh, didn't you know become serial killers or or mass shooters because they saw the Terminator or because they saw Alien, and it's like, yeah, but here's the thing, like. Uh, like a watchman, like Frank Miller's Dark Knight Return, uh, the wrong lessons for entertainment were learned from those films. Um, the core elements of humanity, of character interaction, of, of the price that's paid, of the cost of loss, all of those things that were inherent in this. And, and that all of the explosions, all of the Pithy sayings were for the frosting over the core of what that was. We're now just, we're now served up frosting. Like I, I look at, you know, the Avengers uh, Infinity War, you know, an Endgame is a perfect example. It, it's just shtick after shtick after shtick after shtick, you know, and it's, and it's very successfully designed again to hit that primal lizard brain switch to like going, oh yeah oh yeah victory 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 and at a certain point you know um we wonder why our brains aren't healthy why why we're why we're not able to slow down and and actually savor you know a, a quiet moment there there are you know we go back to moonlight and what barry jenkins doing like the entire and, and he did this a lot with Beale Street as well, is that like there is so much information conveyed 
on some of those slow shots that are held, you know, in the, in the micro expressions of, of the actor, because that's a very human thing. That's we peel, uh, we peel back what someone's actually feeling, what, uh, what their perception is of you, what the perception is of the situation in those moments, in those micro expressions that they can say, no, I'm fine. No, I'm okay. I'm not bothered at all. And you know, by the way that their eyes crinkle, or, or by the way that they pull their bottom lip in, all these things, that, that that's right. not the case. So, yeah. So, kids these days, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I know. Rance, how can people find you? Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I really should. I do have a domain, but it's not uh, active. <laughs> so, um, Mystery Creative, which, let's get this right, because I had to be clever. Yeah, and you're very active on Twitter. I, I'm trying to not be. How's that? I enjoy I, it. On, on Instagram, I'm Rance H. On uh, on Twitter, I am uh, Mystery Creative, which is Mystery C R number eight T V E. That is creative. <laughs> well, it was it was because someone else actually had the full name Mystery of Creative, and, and I was. <laughs> Uh, I was carpet bagging into uh, the mystery Hollywood experience mm. with that account uh, five years ago. I'm going to so. put links for everything, all of your work and everything we've talked about. will all go on the links page on HeyHumanPodcast.com as well. So it's easy for people to, to get to you and to get to your work. And thank you for uh-huh. this incredible conversation. Well, I, I hope that we didn't uh, bore the audience out too much, but... Uh... I can't imagine that would be the case. <laughs> we talked about serial killers, for God's sakes. It's true. This is true. What's wrong with this generation and serial killers? We've, co- <laughs> we've covered all of the basics. That's right. Rance, thank you for being on Hey Human. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening, everybody. And uh, be well. Take care of each other. Bye. Bye. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, everybody. Bye.